At this time, I'd like to ask you to please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. The Sagrada Familia is a basilica in Barcelona. It is scheduled for completion the summer of 2026. In fact, construction began on this marvelous structure all the way back in 1883. It has been under constant development for over 138 years. And to put that in perspective, this building project was initiated before the very first motor car was ever even conceived. Not when it was first built, but before anyone even had the idea that you could possibly do it. They dug the foundations of this building 45 years before the discovery of penicillin. So we're talking a long time, and it still is not finished. Now, it can be difficult for us to understand the concept of projects that would begin in our lifetimes that even our great-great-grandchildren won't see completed. But in history, that's not unusual. In fact, according to one article that I recently read, there are 29 buildings standing today that took more than 500 years of continual construction to complete. Now, Americans don't get that concept easily, and not just because of our microwave society, but also because we as Americans have a very short history. Consider the fact that if George Washington would have started a 500-year building project the day the Revolutionary War began and our nation officially started, if he began it that day, we would still have more than halfway to go before it was finished. 256 years to be precise. Buildings of this sort are designed to make a statement, a declaration of some sort. Generations of men and women labor and put their lives into meticulous and detailed effort in order to complete these marvelous feats of engineering. And today what I'd like to do is speak with you about the greatest building project in all of human history. Please follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 1. This is God's word. It reads, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, Let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Father God, I ask you that today as we come before your word that you would help us to understand it. God, we recognize that it is only by the, the work of your Holy Spirit that we are transformed. So we ask, Lord, that right now as we renew our mind that you would operate in us that metamorphosis where we transform from earthly thinking to heavenly thinking and where we transform from our own desires to yours. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of our gathering this morning, you would be at work in a mighty way so that we might serve you well and love you well and live for you well. God, we desire to be your children in a way that delights you. So Lord, help us to serve you faithfully today. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. As you read through the Bible, whenever you see the Lord judge or 
punish someone or get angry at someone, it should cause you to sit up and pay closer attention. You should wonder to yourself, why is this happening to them so that you might avoid what is taking place to them? You should find yourself considering exactly what it is that causes God to do the things that he does. And as you read Genesis 11, you should be asking yourself, what exactly is the issue here? Why is God so upset with these people? There's no war, right? They all seem to be getting along. Does God just hate cities? Certainly that's not the issue. Cities have existed since the time of Adam and Eve, according to Genesis chapter 4. And the apostles, when they were planting churches, they sent all of their efforts and focus on cities. And it wasn't just that they were building this huge tower either. Now, we, we don't know how tall it could have been, but we're certain that they, they could not have built, with the building projects meant, uh, materials mentioned, they could not have built anything nearing the Empire State Building, and definitely not something like the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world today. So it's not that God just wants to demolish tall buildings because he hasn't demolished those. God allows them to stand. So the answer to our question we need to receive from the text. What does it say? We find our answer in verse 4, where they, where they state, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. This wasn't the project that was a problem. It was the motivation for the project that was flawed. It was all about giving glory to themselves. Let's make a name for us. Now consider that at this time in history, there are only two distinct groups of people existing in the universe. After the flood, you have all of these people, the civilization, the ones who are building the city, and on the other side, you have God. In order to make a name for yourself, it intrinsically means that you must be showing off to someone. And in their case, who were they trying to impress? The only possible answer is that they were trying to say to God, this is who we are. This building project took place in order to tell God, we do not need you. We can protect ourselves. We can provide for ourselves. We can even reach the heavens ourselves by building to the sky. Now, you should pick up the less than subtle insult that God has in response. In verse 5, it says, the Lord came down to see the city. Now, no matter how high they built, God still had to descend in order to get a closer look. He had to bend down low. It's as if he's saying, I'm crawling now on my hands and knees and inspecting this little anthill of a thing that you have built in order to examine what they have done. Now, obviously, God is not a physical being, and this anthropomorphism is a metaphorical insult rather than a literal one. He was not literally stepping out of heaven to look. But the point clearly stands. God is saying, your efforts are small. They are parochial. They are puny. These people were probably already at least a century into construction, yet the glory that they were seeking was thwarted without God lifting a finger. He simply changed everyone's brains to think in different languages, ensuring that they would disperse from one another and spread across the face of the earth. Now, God will not permit self-glorifying creatures to ultimately succeed in their never-ending quest to emancipate themselves from God. Sometimes our efforts for glory, or self-glory rather, sometimes those efforts are shared. Like the people at Babel, we will encircle some idea or ideal, and we will build a building or a nation or a city or a movement or an empire in order to make a name for ourselves. But the problem of self-glorification can only become 
a joint transgression because it is at first a pursuit of every human heart on the individual level. That is who you are and who I am by nature. From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, humanity has attempted to unseat God as the authority over them. But it isn't just God's dominion that we have rejected. Due to the fall, we are all born with a heart that would prefer to give glory to anything but God. Romans chapter 1 verse 23 explains that we have, quote, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We would prefer to give anything glory but God himself, the one who deserves it. Let's face it. You were built to be a worshiper. Every human being is, at their very core, designed to project glory somewhere. And idolatry is the blasphemous notion that a created thing could be worthy of your worship. Now, without traveling far down this road this morning, I simply want to state that every form of idol worship, whatever it might look like in your life, is actually a form of self-worship. If you want to know more about that, I'd love to discuss it. But for the sake of time today, we're not going to. So God saw Babel, and he refused to let it continue. Not because he was threatened by it. What could they do to him? But because that building project actually threatened the very people who were building it. That tower was a lie that promised them things it could not give them. They were relying on stone and brick and mortar and tar to give them glory and a name and protection and even heaven itself. But by rejecting the Lord's authority and refusing to find ways to give him glory, they were imagining that they were just fine without God. And that is the most dangerous place a person can be. The most gracious thing that God could do for a self-glorifying society is bring it to its knees so that they might see their need for God in this lifetime. Now, this is true for nations, and it is certainly true for individuals. Now, as promised, we are discussing the greatest building project in all of human history. But Babel, this, this tower, it was a massive structure. But at this point, there's nothing left of it. We look back and we see that there's perhaps some remnants, if we're looking in the right place, maybe of what the foundations looked like. But we're, really, there's nothing left. All the stone, all the tar, all the bricks, all the mortar, it's all gone. What, what name did they make for themselves? They have no glory. All of their efforts were fruitless. Babel is not the greatest building project in all of history by any means. There is actually a building the Bible speaks about which is much more significant, and I am speaking of you. I am speaking of the building that Jesus himself promised to build. He says, Jesus the great engineer, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So for the remainder of our time together today, what we're going to do is jump into the New Testament and consider three main concepts that are all throughout the scripture regarding the great building project that God has been constructing for millennia. So our first point that we'll consider as we move forward is this. God is the builder. Now this should be an obvious statement. I think if you were to ask any child in our elementary school level at the church, they would be able to tell you, if you asked, who is the great builder of the church? I think they would all say, God. However, ever since the early church, people have found ways to misunderstand and even twist reality in such a way that even within the church, glory is often given to man rather than to God. Consider the Corinthians. Now, this church was a problematic church. If you want to know how a church should look, 
you should read 1 Corinthians because he has to correct just about everything that they were doing because they were the church that got almost everything wrong. And one of these times that he is speaking to the Corinthian church, he has to help them because this church was fracturing because of the way they falsely attributed growth to Paul or to Apollos. Just like people do with blockbuster movies, they pick their teams. I'm team Apollos or I'm team Paul. Now, Paul's response to this pastor worship was very blunt. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This is a particularly potent reminder when we see growth in our midst. And there's a danger in assuming that we are the ultimate cause behind the development or expansion or maturation of this local body. Sin is insidious because it is able to take good things and turn them into opportunities to rob God of his glory. Now, I am astounded at what God has done at RGF over the last five years. I don't really remember exactly what I was expecting the first five years to look like. They always ask you for your five-year plan. I don't know what I was expecting, but I will say I am blown away by what the Lord has done in our midst. He has brought many people to glory. He has discipled people through the work of the church. He has brought people to points of greater maturity. We have seen in our midst many extended acts of repentance and incredible acts of selfless service, and all of this is very good. Recently, a group of guys from RGF and, and from Gateway have been gathering on Friday nights to discuss biblical leadership and what that looks like according to Scripture. And one thing we did was study through a book that's called Lead by Paul Tripp, and I would like to share an extended quote that I think would help explain one of the aspects of what I'm trying to get at even better than I could say it myself. He writes, We ministry leaders are given way too much credit for the results of our ministry, and we should all resist it. People tend to think that we have way more power and wisdom than we actually have. Ministry success is a treatment, or is a testament to who God is and what he is willing to do through us by grace. We have no ability whatsoever to control all the things that need to be controlled for ministry success. We have no control over the gifts we have been given. We have no power to turn the hearts of people to the Lord. We are tools in the hand of the one who has awesome power and glory and grace, and we are nothing more. The gospel institutions that we have built have been built by his power and grace, so they stand as monuments to his presence and glory and not to us. As Romans 11.36 powerfully says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he's absolutely right in what he is stating here. So now as we move forward as a congregation and we become part of Gateway, I want you to be on guard of any claim that you might make in your heart of some kind of superiority based upon our results. Fend off any sense of pride that would lead us to some kind of us versus them divide. As of April 4th, we are going to be one church, and we are going to be grafted into their congregation. In some ways, we are going to be moving out of the comfortable rhythm that we have found here, and we will be starting over in inevitable disruption as we learn how to love one another well as one body. Unlike Babel, this building has been designed and is being constructed by God himself, and as such, he is to receive all the glory. 
I want to make one clarification before I move forward. Just because we have we have to rely fully on the Lord to accomplish the work of the church, it does not mean that we should ignore his ways of doing things. Sometimes God works through the fact that he has given us his word to structure things according to very specific parameters and forms of teaching and doctrine. And so we do want to rely on those things. But we just water and God gives the increase. Which brings us to our second point, which is you are the building. Now perhaps it's obvious and goes without saying, but let's just say it. Let's name explicitly the implications of what God is saying. If Jesus promises to build his church, then it necessarily indicates that he is going to do the work of finding people and saving people. And that means that he is the one who is bringing them into his kingdom. Now notice that Jesus does not say that the swords of hell cannot stand against him. He does not reference catapults or spears or arrows or any of the other normal weapons that you would encounter in this time of ancient war. Instead, Jesus speaks of the gates of hell. Walls and gates are defensive armaments. They're designed to keep people out of your city. And by declaring that the gates of hell will not prevail, it is an indication that Jesus is about to go on the offensive and he is going to storm the enemy's domain in order to build a population for his own gathering. The word church, ecclesia, just means gathered people. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to bring them out and I am going to gather them around myself. And if you are a Christian, it is because God has transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus is building his church and he is doing so one person at a time by bringing spiritually dead people like you and I to life so that we will follow him and serve him as members of his kingdom. Now consider the way that Paul describes our spiritual transformation in Ephesians chapter 2. Now oftentimes when I am referencing Ephesians 2, I'm referencing the first 11 verses. And that's for good reason because it speaks to our spiritual birth in an amazing way. But what I'd like to do is aim at the end here of that chapter. Verses 19 through 22. As I read this passage, I want you to pay close attention to the architectural metaphor that is being employed to describe what God has done by saving you. Paul writes, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, now he begins describing you, you Christian, as a building. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now in the illustration above, Paul describes Jesus as the cornerstone of the building. That means that if anyone is not in alignment with him, they do not belong in the building. Everything must be oriented around him. And directly after Jesus came to the apostles, or after Jesus came, the apostles arose, whose teachings were given, according to Paul here, as the foundation of the church. And that means that if you do not believe the doctrines handed down in Scripture by these apostles, then you are not part of God's building project. Paul uses the term being joined together that you as a believer are being joined together with others to describe how we are now being like bricks in a wall created as a layer of the generation of this building project that will be built upon in future generations. I like how some translations use the term that we are being fitted together. 
I don't know if you've ever seen like an ancient building, like if you go and look at how they had cut the stones so perfectly and you have these rocks that they have carved by hand that fit together and you could not fit a penny between them. They are perfectly fitted together. And that is what God says he is doing in us. He is building us together. And the KJV, I actually like the best, where it says that we are being fitly framed together. Rocky's doing a massive project on his basement renovation. Uh, If you want to know what framing looks like and how it has to be perfectly aligned, talk to Rocky. You have to be fitly framed together in the church, and God is building us in that way. 1 Peter 2, verse 5 describes the very same concept when Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The point being, God is building his church year by year by saving and sanctifying more people. He is the builder. You are the building. But that leaves us with one interesting twist in the metaphor, and that is our third concept to explore this morning. The Bible not only refers to God as the builder and you as the building, God also speaks through the scripture about you taking part as a builder. You are the building, But when you become a Christian, you are also called to be a builder alongside the Lord. Perhaps the most quoted verse in this pulpit over the past five years has been Psalm 127, verse 1, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, the obvious point of that text is that God is the one who is ultimately responsible for anything of lasting value. However, you will also note that in that verse, It does not indicate that those who labor should ever cease their efforts. One of the most shocking things that we have become too accustomed to hearing is that God works through us. How unbelievable and mind-boggling is it that a perfect, holy God would utilize imperfect, finite human creatures like us to fulfill his ends. God who needs nothing from us delights in drawing us near and allowing us to join his efforts to build his kingdom. I love it when I'm working on a project and my son will come and sit next to me and he'll try to figure out how to help me. Now, sometimes he is very unhelpful, but sometimes he is very helpful and he was able to serve alongside and he is able to take the screwdriver and turn it and he is able to get me the right thing. And I enjoy bringing him into that work. Now, could I do it better on my own? Yes, could I do it faster on my own? Absolutely, with no question. Could I make sure that I don't lose the tools better on my own? Without a doubt, but I bring him in because I delight in him. It is not for my sake that I bring him in. It is for his sake that I bring him into this ministry, and that is exactly what God is doing with us. He could do all of what he wants to do, building his kingdom apart from us, but he has used us to serve him. That should be a an amazing reminder of God's mercy and grace. So let's jump back to 1 Corinthians 3 for just a minute or two. Remember how the Corinthians were battling over who should get the glory? I think Paul should be the hero and everyone else is saying, no, I I, I follow Apollos. He's the one who baptized me. I, I like him better. Well, consider that what Paul writes directly after what we read earlier. He says, he who plants and he who waters are one. Like we're all doing the same job here, really. And each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. That statement is incredible. You are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 
What a statement. Paul links the fact that we are God's building to the fact that we are also called to labor for the kingdom and that our efforts, our work, our, our labor is going to be judged by God. And he continues that thought by explaining his role as an apostle. He states, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Now, as we're going to see more clearly in a moment, every single Christian alive today and every Christian who has ever lived has taken part in this building project. We are the ones building upon his foundation. Now, you're being firmly fitted together into that wall so that the next generation of believers might be fitted in above you. There would be no you if there were no generation of gospel-preaching people before you. You all heard the gospel somehow, and God, through his providential outworking of his timing, sent someone as an evangelist to declare to you, whether it was your parents or someone on the street or someone on the radio or the television, you heard the gospel because someone else was fitted into that wall before you. And now what we see taking place is that every single Christian who is alive in this generation is called to do the same. We are building that building. And our building project that we are part of is permanent. It is for the rest of our lives. And it is diametrically opposed to what was taking place at Babel. There they were building on the foundation of self-glorification. Let's make a name for ourselves. And what we are called to do is quite the opposite. Paul continues and says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Our entire existence is now designed to expand upon the foundation of Jesus' ministry. We just say, look to him. We are all builders, every last Christian in this room. We are laborers who are called to take part in shaping God's masterpiece design of the church. But here is where I want to land the plane this morning that not all of us are laboring to build his kingdom well. Paul puts it this way as he continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, let's just make a few clarifications about this right up front. First of all, this passage is not teaching that you are saved by your works. This is not a works-based salvation. Notice in verse 15, it is clear that every single person Paul is speaking about will ultimately be saved. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Every person that he is referencing, every laborer who is building this kingdom, every last one of them is going to make it to heaven. He is not arguing that our works will produce a greater chance of salvation or a higher likelihood of seeing heaven. That's not the point. Rather, Paul is making a point about the fact that we often fail to utilize what God has given us to truly do what is valuable. We've been given a very short life. Um, anybody who is looking back over the last years thinking, how quickly did that fly by? And they say that the older that you get, the faster time goes. Now, I'm 
34. I don't know if that's true necessarily, but as far as I can look back over the last part of my life, I would say that certainly seems to be accurate. We're only here for a short period of time. God has made us a vapor here today. We are gone tomorrow. And we all have opportunity to use this life to serve the Lord. But the question is, what is your section of this building project going to look like on the last day? Take a look at the list of building materials that Paul gives. He lists gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. These items are presented to us in descending order of value. As a side note, these precious stones that he's referencing, they're not to be understood as like crystals or gems or or jewels, but as expensive stone building materials like granite or quartz. But they're also divided into two distinct categories. Gold and silver and precious stones are not destroyed by fire, but wood, hay, and straw are all consumed by it. John MacArthur expertly describes these materials this way. He says, These materials do not represent wealth or talents or opportunity, nor do they represent spiritual gifts, all of which are good and are given to each believer by the Lord as he sees fit. The materials represent believers' responses to what they have, how well they serve the Lord with what he has given them. In other words, they represent our works. Metaphorically speaking, God is going to stress test your part in the building project. He is going to examine your efforts and he is going to check your work and he's going to do so publicly. As the judge of your heart and of your actions and of your thoughts, he is going to make plain all of your labor. So this encourages us, do not seek earthly reputation. Like That doesn't matter because eventually everybody's gonna know the real you. Hypocrisy in this life will be exposed when that curtain is pulled back and everyone sees the product of your life lived for God. Again, here's how Paul puts it. He said, each one's work will become manifest. In other words, everyone will know. For the day will disclose it. If you have your your Bible open, you'll see that that's a capital D. It's referencing a judgment that is coming. Because it will be revealed by fire, he says, and that fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Now, here's why I want to land the plane here this morning. Because it could be easy for someone to think, well, let's face it. If God is the builder and I'm the building, then this entire metaphor that God has given us of what he is doing in human history means that I am intrinsically passive. I am not required to do anything because he is the builder and I'm just a brick in the wall. Therefore, I do nothing. Well, on the one hand, that's accurate. Anything that lasts is because God is working through you. But on the other hand, God tells you that you are to take part in his great effort of building his kingdom and that everything that you do does matter and that he doesn't need you, but he wants to use you. And I will just... Do my thing is a terrible idea for your life. If you do your thing, you build Babel. Every one of you is going to build something somehow with your life. And you are either going to build something for self-glorification or for his glory. The reality is that by very, very nature of being part of God's kingdom, you are supposed to be a builder of his building. And you have the amazing privilege of giving your life to give the very best to take part in the great building project that God has been working on since long before you were born and most likely long after you are dead. So let your life be spent in service of the king. And by the time that you die, I hope you can say that you left everything on the field, that God does not measure 
your life by your fruitfulness. Now, we, we look around and we see the growth that God has done. God doesn't measure by fruitfulness, by human capacity to measure. He is going to judge based upon your faithfulness. Someone like Jeremiah, who preached for years and years and years and never saw anyone hear him or listen to him or be converted by him. At that point, Jeremiah could be looked at and said, well, what did he really do? He was faithful. Hebrews chapter 3, Moses is considered to be great, not because of the miracles, but because it says he was faithful in all God's house. You don't have to be given an amazing task. You just have to be faithful with what you do have in front of you. So the Lord is to be served daily with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength so that on the last day that you will have the great privilege of presenting the Lord with your part of that wall and you can say, I've given my best so that you might receive maximum glory. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I pray that each one of us will have a heart that is oriented towards giving all glory to you. We want your name to be lifted high. We want you to be lifted up. So God, we pray that in all that we say and all that we do, all of our efforts in this life would be designed and orchestrated so that you might receive the adulation and the praise. Lord, I think of this transition that is rapidly coming in our direction with Gateway. Uh, Lord, I pray that in the midst of this, it would be an opportunity for us to continue to grow and to continue to see the outworking of your work in the midst of the church, that we would see your... Uh, people coming together and being saved and being raised up and being filled with spiritual maturity. God, I pray for that. And I pray that in the midst of it, we would never grow proud, but we would, we would recognize you are the builder and that we are the building, but be thankful that we have been given the privilege to build alongside. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.